This video is part of an audiobook series featuring Europe, The Strange Death of Europe, Immigration, Identity, and Islam by Douglas Murray in 2017. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel, find me on Spotify, or check out my website for downloads. Chapter 9, Early Warning Sirens Other sirens were going off across Europe. In the early 2000s, in Holland and then Norway, the gay American author Bruce Bauer began to grow worried that increasing numbers of gay men in his acquaintance in Europe's most liberal cities, including Amsterdam, were being beaten up by Muslim men. Bauer had left his native country in the 1990s partly because of what he saw as the rise of the influence of Christian pastors who were virulently opposed to gay rights. In Europe, Bauer began to notice that there was a different type of cleric, from a different religion than the one he was used to, who didn't just think that gays shouldn't be allowed to marry, but thought that they should be thrown from tall buildings. Like Pim Fortoyne, Bauer started to wonder why a society that prided itself on its liberalism seemed to be worried about offending Muslims more than it worried about protecting gays. Islamic homophobia, an issue that had barely occurred to the gay press, much less to the mainstream press, began to get a tiny airing. But the gay rights groups that had been so virulent in their attacks on the Catholic and other Christian churches seemed willing not only to sit out this sharper problem, but to attack people like Bauer for raising the facts. In two books and many articles, he attempted to, to highlight the oddity of liberal societies going quiet on such bigotry just because it was coming from a community of immigrants. A set of competing victimhood narratives appeared to exist, Bauer showed, but gays were being trumped in that narrative at the moment by the Muslims. Like every other early warning siren, Bauer was considerably defamed for his trouble, often by the liberal gay press and others who might have been expected to heed his call. He was just one more demonstration of the fact that when the messenger was not actually shot, he or she was in other ways silenced as much as possible. But throughout the first decade of the century, it was the early warning sirens on blasphemy and free speech that finally became most audible on the front line. The publication of a set of cartoons of Islam's prophet in a small circulation Danish newspaper, Jelund's Posten, demonstrated one flashpoint of the era. The cartoon crisis was another demonstration, like the Rushdie affair 16 years earlier, that the issues brought about by mass migration would continue to surprise. If a Dane in the 1990s had said that the story which would bring the most attention to their country in the next decade would most likely be a cartoon crisis, a phrase people increasingly uttered with a straight face, people would have thought that the person was unhinged. Yet that crisis was kicked off in 2005 when an editor at Jolans Posten learned that a Danish children's publisher could not find any cartoonist willing to contribute cartoons for the volume on Islam in a series of children's books on the world's religions. Startled that such a taboo should exist in a free society, the newspaper tested whether that taboo was breakable. Not smart. They showed that it was, but at great cost. As well as leading to riots and embassy burnings across the Muslim world, there were also protests by Muslims throughout Europe. In London, protesters outside the Danish embassy held signs saying, Freedom go to hell, 7-7 seven, seven on the way, and calls to behead. After several thwarted attempts on the life of Kurt Westergaard, one of the Danish cartoonists, an axe-wielding Muslim trained by Al-Shabaab in Africa, entered the cartoonist's house 
on New Year's Day in an effort to decapitate him, 2010. A safe room that Westgard had been persuaded to install in his home was the only thing that saved him. My goodness. This soon became the new normal in Europe. In the wake of the Danish affair, cartoon crises started breaking out across Europe. In 2006, the, in Norway, the editor of the Christian paper Magazinet chose to reproduce the Danish cartoons to show his readers what all the fuss was about. The Norwegian Prime Minister, Jan Stoltenberg, not only criticized the paper's editor, Vedjorn Selbeck, for doing so, this is tough today, guys, but threatened him with prosecution. When a mob burnt down the Norwegian embassy in Damascus, the prime minister claimed that Selbeck was jointly responsible for the outrage. Other political and cultural figures lined up to attack the provocation and lack of respect shown by the paper, while Selbeck himself was forced to go into hiding and receive police protection. The next year, a cartoon crisis broke out in Sweden when the artist Lars Vilks drew a picture of Muhammad and was chased into hiding. As with the Yolande Post and cartoonists, in the years that followed, there were multiple terrorist efforts to kill him. In 2011, the offices of the French satirical magazine Charlie Hebdo, one of the only publications to reprint the Danish cartoons, were firebombed in Paris. In 2013, the Danish journalist and historian Lars Hedegaard, a prominent critic of Islam, was visited at his door in the morning by a gunman who fired two shots at his head. The 70-year-old survived because the gun jammed on the second bullet. Hedegaard managed to punch the man, who subsequently ran off, finding sanctuary in Turkey. These were only some of the attacks that happened in the period from 2005 onwards, but there were many more to come. This is just going to go through like another bunch of tales of that happening. I just want to get to the interesting parts of the book. There seemed to be no end in sight to such legal and physical attacks, and so nobody flinched in 2015 at a passing mention in a piece in the Atlantic magazine to Europe's endless debilitating blasphemy wars. Despite a couple of decades of warning, from the Rushdie affair onwards, no one in any position of authority or power had predicted this wave of events. No one had, who had opened up the borders of Europe to mass migration from the Third World had ever thought about it as a Muslim issue. No one had prepared for the possibility that those arriving might not only become integrated, but might bring many social and religious views with them, and that other minorities might be the first victims of such a lack of foresight. No one in a position of influence had expected that an upsurge in immigration would lead to an increase in anti-Semitism and gay bashing. No one who had ever nodded through the lax immigration policies had ever predicted this emergence of Muslim blasphemy as one of the major cultural and security issues of 21st century Europe. All those who had warned about it had either been ignored, defamed, dismissed, prosecuted, or killed. Rarely, if ever, even after the facts changed, did the actual victims receive much sympathy. What mainstream politics and much of the media had in fact done, right up to and throughout the 2000s, was encourage a sense that the people in Europe who were shouting fire were the arsonists. Efforts to silence the people who raised their voice, whether through violence, intimidation, or the courts, meant that three decades after the Rushdie affair, there was almost no one in Europe who would dare write a novel, compose a piece of music, or even draw an image which might invoke Muslim anger. Indeed, they ran in the other direction. Politicians and almost everybody else went out of their way to show how much they did admire the religion of Islam. 
Of course, in the aftermath of large-scale terrorist attacks in Madrid 2004, London 05, and Paris in 15, governments had to do something and had to be seen to be doing something. Most proved able to address the specific counterterrorism aspects of the problem, but they remained hopeless prisoners of their own and their predecessors' policies and continued to be caught in a language game entirely of their own invention. In June of 2007, two car bombs were left in the center of London by a doctor in the NHS and another Muslim who was a PhD student. The first device was left outside a popular nightclub on Ladies' Night, and the nail-packed bomb was placed outside the glass frontage. Wow, this is horrific. Next paragraph. Six years later, after another two British Muslims had had... Oh, this is another just grisly example. I'm in this... I'll be pausing the audiobook, guys. I'm just kind of not here for all the grisly details. That's not really my cup of tea. I'm just going to get to the stuff that's happening, the political stuff in Europe, and reasons. I hope that you bear with me. Back to the book. Like the politicians, most of the media across Europe throughout these years showed very little desire either to understand or say publicly what might be going on. For the press, the causes were obvious, a combination of fear, cowardice, and an internalization of the threat. The politicians, meanwhile, could not face up to the problem because they were responsible for introducing it into Europe. Throughout all the decades that had gone before, almost no one had considered the ideologies or beliefs of the people who were coming or showed much curiosity in doing so, as is wont in the liberal economy. Politicians and the media in general minimized the differences between Islam and any other faith, and all the time they insisted that the solution to the problem, if it did exist, was to bind the future of European societies to the future of Islam, in backing the moderates so that a reformed version could prevail. This, the politicians insisted, would solve the problem both for Europe and for Islam as a whole. They appeared to have no awareness of the fact that from the Mutazilites in the 10th century to the Iranian Alidashti in the 20th century, Islamic history had witnessed many reform movements and many reform-minded individuals, all of which had been defeated by the force arguments, and appeals to authority of the fundamentalists. Mm. What European politicians were doing during this period was tying the future of Europe's security to a reform movement that had failed throughout history and was at the very least likely to fail again. Still, they remained undeterred in their pursuit of this argument. In a speech to the Conservative Party conference in 2014, the then-British Home Secretary, Theresa May, did what every politician was doing, which was to stress the peacefulness of Islam and to quote some of her favorite verses from the Quran. Having witnessed their forcefulness with which many Muslims were willing to defend their faith, it appeared to become the attitude of the political mainstream to pretend that the religion of Islam was at least partly true and a source of wisdom and guidance. By, two <clears throat> by 2016, one of Angela Merkel's key allies, the German finance minister Wolfgang Schobel, was calling for the creation of a German Islam. Hmm. The career paths of those who took a contrary view did not flourish in the same way. In Holland, after long periods of having to live in army barracks and government safe houses, Ian Herziali was finally allowed by the Dutch security service to live in a specially protected building in Holland but her new neighbors sued to get her to move away from them, so fearful were they for their own lives with this troublemaker nearby. 
Soon afterwards, based on untrue claims made by a television station, the Minister of Immigration and Integration of Herzi Ali's own party, the VDD, withdrew her citizenship. The country that had allowed in hundreds of thousands of Muslims without expecting them to integrate, and which harbored some of the most radical preachers and cells in Europe, withdrew citizenship from one of the only immigrants who actually showed what a fully integrated immigrant to Holland would look like. Herzi Ali moved to America, becoming, as Salman Rushdie subsequently put it, maybe the first refugee from Western Europe since the Holocaust. Is that extreme? Maybe. Europe seemed for a time to have come to the conclusion that the problems of extremism would go away if the people who pointed to them went away. Yet, whether the critics were killed, chased into hiding, or chased from Europe, the problem did not go away. Not least, of course, because the immigrants stayed and had no intention of going anywhere. Many heeded the explicit as well as implicit advice in the countries they had come from to remain in Europe, but not to become European. At a rally in Cologne in 2008, Prime Minister, later President Erdogan of Turkey, told the crowd of 20,000 Turks living in Germany, Belgium, France, and the Netherlands, quote, I understand very well that you are against assimilation. One cannot expect you to assimilate. Assimilation is a crime against humanity, end quote. Wow. Nevertheless, he told his audience that they should get involved in politics and gain influence so that the 5 million Turks then living in Europe would be able to wield a constitutional element and not just be guests. Nice. In 2016 in Amsterdam, as in many other European cities, there are suburbs that are Muslim enclaves. On a sunny day, the buildings in these areas look no worse than in any other European suburb. Indeed, most of the houses are a kind that most young couples in Western Europe would struggle to afford as a first step onto the housing ladder. This is where the Turkish guest workers congregated from the time that they migrated to the country 60 years earlier. Today, like many other parts of the suburbs of Amsterdam and Rotterdam, these suburbs comprise many Turkeys and many Moroccos. The food shops are halal. The women all wear some form of head covering, and life goes on much as it would if the people were in Turkey or Morocco. One of the houses, in a row on a quiet, pleasant street, is where Mohamed Boyeri lived, the house from which he set off that morning a decade ago to find Theo van Gogh and slaughter him. It is not an especially threatening area. It is simply a different area. There are election posters in many of the windows, all showing the face of Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.